So, as I said this morning, we're going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And, and Ephesians is one of those books, or letters really, that the more I've read it, the more I love it. And I think maybe it could be the same for you, because Paul sometimes I feel like is one of those, whenever you go to read one of the letters of Paul, this is what I find. The first read can be confusing because he puts so much <laughs> into such a small amount of space that sometimes it feels overwhelming. But Ephesians is one of those books that the more you read it, the more it pays off. The more you begin to see what Paul is trying to say, what Paul is trying to communicate to the people living in, in Ephesus. And, and to me, Ephesians chapter 1, particularly these verses have just more and more as I've meditated on them, just been an enormous blessing to me. And so I'm excited to be able to share with you this morning just a little bit about, um, about this passage. I would love to just walk through the whole book of Ephesians, but you and I, neither one, want to be here that long. So we're just going to look at, at a little snippet, but see it for what it is. It's an introduction into, really, into the letter. And so all the things that Paul is going to expand on and talk about, he's going to, to kind of introduce us to in Ephesians chapter 1. And so, so really see, I think, Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, like 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. See that, see that for what it is, right? That it's, that it's really, it's introducing all of the things that really in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, that Paul is going to, going to expand on. And so if this has your interest, you know, or whatever, please, like, go, go read Ephesians today. It won't take that long. It's, it literally takes, like, 15, 20 minutes to read, all right? Uh, anyway, as we, as we look at this passage, uh, I'm just going to read it um, for us here, here quickly. And I'm going to read it out, out of the English Standard Version, even though I have the New Living in front of me. I actually wrote the English Standard Version down in my, in my Bible. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. I think actually, in, in this case, the English Standard Version helps us to see uh, kind of each individual thing that Paul is praying for, uh, because it's a prayer. Paul says, hey, I'm praying, this is what I pray for you guys, right? And it kind of helps us to see, I think, more clearly each individual thing than the New Living does. New Living is great. It's, it's fine translation. You know, like I, I read it on a regular basis. I would encourage you to as well. Um, but in this case, I think the more literal translation is actually more helpful. <laughs> so... Um, Here's what Paul says, starting in, I'll just read it from here because I only have verse 17 and on. Uh, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is, <clears throat> what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He goes on then to say that he worked, sorry, it was power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. <coughs> that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills 
all in all. Guys, just in these few verses, there is an enormous amount of stuff worth unpacking, but we're just going to focus in really on verses 18 and 19. Now, as we get started, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar um, with a guy by the name of William Randolph Hearst. So he was a newspaper man in, in the States um, who actually became one of the wealthiest men um, in America and in the world. And this, this was kind of um, in the early, early 20th century, late, 18th, late 19th century, uh, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, he founded actually, so he owned like the, the Washington Times, um, the New York Post, uh, all of these, uh, or sorry, the New York Journal. These were newspapers at the time that were huge. He owned a vast, he, he had a vast amount of wealth. And what he liked to do with this wealth is to collect things. Because at that time, that's what you did. Like the Chester Beatty Library, you've got Chester Beatty, super rich oil tycoon. What did he do with all of his money? He collected things. You know, because I guess when you have lots of money, that's what you do. So William Randolph Hearst loved to collect ancient things. Right? And at one point, um, William Wearsby tells the story, at one point, William Randolph Hearst had come across, he heard about an artifact that he just had to get his hands on. It was too good, like he needed it for his collection because if he had this in his collection, then he could, he could really feel like he had something significant. And so he hired tons of, like several people to go and look for this, this artifact. They scoured the earth looking for this artifact and eventually they found it. Do you know where they found it? In his collection. He already owned it. It was already his. Like he had such a vast collection. He had such an enormous amount of things. He didn't even know the treasures that he had. They were in his warehouse. Hearst had been searching frantically for treasures he already owned. Had he read the catalog of his treasures, he would have saved himself a great deal of money and a great deal of trouble. And I tell that story because I think many of us are like this. Because as I look around the room, I know for, the, for you know, most of us, we have given our lives to Jesus. We've said we're going to follow Christ. And yet the reality of our lives sometimes is that we say, oh yes, Christ is a treasure that I, that, like, you know, I want the, the, the peace and the joy and, and the life with Christ. And yet we go searching for it in all of these places, not realizing that we actually already have it. And so, many of us, we search for the peace and joy that Jesus promises. We spend great deals of time and money and effort, like Hearst, looking for this joy and this peace. And even there, we taste glimpses of this peace as we sit maybe in a, in a nice Italian evening sipping our favorite wine, eating pizza, finishing it off with gelato, all while sitting next to our favorite person in the whole world. Yes, this is biographical. Uh, and you know what? The problem is I don't live in Italy. Like, that's a wonderful, that was like one of the, just, it was just a peaceful time. It was one of those where like everything just seemed right in the world. But I don't live in Italy. And to be honest, if I did, it would probably lose its luster. You know, you can, I, I would imagine eating enough pizza and gelato, eventually you get tired of it. I, I don't know, it'd take me a while, but. 
But here's the thing. That experience, like I said, it's biographical. Like that, that happened to me, and it was one of those moments where you just feel like, ah, the world is all, is all right. Like, you know? But it was temporary, because I came back home. It was a temporary moment. And I think so often what happens, because these, these experiences are not bad things. Like, that was not a bad thing to experience. In fact, it was actually a good thing. But when we elevate good things to ultimate things, when that becomes an end to itself, then we turn to striving, where we feel like we are constantly striving. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel that anxiety of striving, like I'm constantly striving for the next thing. Whether, you know, again, we, we could give all kinds of examples, but I think we live in a world that constantly encourages us, pushes us to be striving, striving to, for, for success, striving for for experiences. I think that's one of the big things in our, in, our, in our world now. We feel we need these moments of like high experiences, whether that's being at a championship football game, whether that's being at like, whether that, that's being at, at um, the Connacht match last night, you know, or, or whether that's being at, uh, you know, sitting in Italy eating gelato and pizza or like whatever that is. Like we, we chase after these experiences because they give us a taste of something bigger than ourselves. They feel like all of a sudden we have these moments of joy and these moments of peace. But just like striving, they don't last. And I don't know about you guys, but I know for myself, I can get caught in that. And so I only assume that I'm not the only one who can get caught up in, these, in this striving because we live in a world that constantly tells us to chase after these things. It says, no, no, look, look, Jesus, like all that kind of stuff, that was for the old ancient people. We're way smarter than that now. We know how to find peace and happiness. Right? It's through spending tons of money and buying all kinds of things and having everything we ever dreamed of. And even though the story we know constantly over and over is that that doesn't lead to happiness. And so we can see, instead, I think what we need to do is to see these moments as blessings from God, not as the end to themselves. In our flat world, where we've got science to explain away everything. And again, they'll just make the same. I'm not anti-science, and I don't think there's any conflict between the Bible and science. But I also think science has become a religion unto itself. And we use science to explain away everything. And our, and our world has become flat because of it. In our flat world, void of spiritual, the spiritual, and particularly void, I think, of, of Christianity, of Yahweh, and his life-giving transcendence, we confuse these moments as the way to peace and not as a gift from the God of peace. And so I think really what it boils down to is a couple of things. What Luke talked about last week, that you and I fail often to fix our eyes on Jesus. This is why we always feel like, if I just get out of this situation, or I just have this better thing, or I just get this other thing, or person, or whatever, like then, then everything will be wonderful. And then guess what? It is for a moment, and then it's not. The grass is always greener, right? That's the saying we hear all the time. The grass is always greener. Well, guess what? If you live in a climate like Italy or you know, whatever, the grass dies, and then it's not so green anymore. And all of a sudden, the world is back to the way it was. And so 
We fail to see the incredible treasure like hers that we have that is ours in Christ Jesus when we fail to fix our eyes on him. We're prone to fix our eyes on other things. And so, distracted, that we don't even notice what we've had all along. You know, there's an album I've been listening to throughout this year. Um, Unless you want to be depressed, it's not one I would necessarily recommend. Um, But I think it's one of those that, like, again, I think it speaks to the cultural moment that we live in very strongly. It's by a band called The Arcade Fire. They've been around for ages. Um, That probably dates me to a degree, but the album at least is new. Um, The band is older, but the album is new. And and in it, the the album is called We, and in it there's two songs, both called The Age of Anxiety. One's called originally Age of Anxiety 1, and one's called Age of Anxiety 2. And I think it's aptly titled, and in Age of Anxiety 2, the lead singer of The Arcade Fire says, nothing ever can replace it. When it's gone, you can still taste it. Going on this trip together, rabbit hole goes on forever. And it's this idea that, that we get caught up in like diving down the rabbit hole, chasing after all of these things like cursed that we already have. And so here's the thing. That's a long way around to saying, I think many of us, even though we may have given our lives to Jesus, even though we may have said, I want to follow Jesus, we still find ourselves diving down that rabbit hole and finding ourselves feeling lost. Going, I thought this whole Christian thing was supposed to be different. What's going on? (laughs) And this is where I think Ephesians chapter 1 is incredibly helpful. Because I think many of us, you know, we can listen to last week's sermon, and we say, yes, I want to fix my eyes on Jesus. You know, and maybe you left here last week going, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. That's it. This time, I mean, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. But the problem is, we start going about our week, <laughs> and life gets in the way. And so Paul here, here's what Paul says, and this is why I think this, this is significant. Right? He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, some degree this is past tense. Having ha- you, could also, you could also say having had the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In other words, when we came to Christ, we received God's spirit and our eyes were enlightened. Our hearts were enlightened to see the goodness. You know, at one point, right, when we gave our lives to Christ, we went, wow, I can see the goodness of Jesus. I'm going to follow him. But what he prays then is that their eyes would be even more enlightened because we need to have our eyes continually enlightened. We need to have the eyes of our hearts continually enlightened to see the goodness and the grace and the kindness, the, or as Paul is going to pray, the hope and the, and the love and the power of Jesus because we are so easily distracted by counterfeit things that promise what only God can give. And the thing is, is it runs so much deeper. And this, I think, is why what Paul says is so significant. We're going to unpack it more in a second. It runs so much deeper than just assenting to the right beliefs of saying, oh yeah, I believe that. Because I think that's the reality for many of us. And we even, we do. I think, I think to a degree, we do believe it, right? We say, no, I do believe that Jesus is Lord. Yet my life doesn't reflect that. 
And here's why we live in that, that constant conflict of saying, this is what I believe, and yet when I look at my life, I actually don't see that I actually believe, you know, I, I actually believe what I say I believe, right? The two don't sit, they sit in cognitive, cognitive dissonance, is that the word, right? Cognitive dissonance, right? They sit separate from each other, and, it, and it's frustrating, and it makes us anxious, and it makes us, you know, it irritates us. Even there, we live with the, sometimes maybe with the, you know, what, what people talk about, like the Christian guilt or something like that, and it's going like, how do we bridge that gap? How do we become the people that we want to be, the people that follow Jesus, that know Jesus, that live like him? Here's the thing. It's deeper than just having the right beliefs and the right worldview. It comes down to how we understand the world, not just at a head level, but at, with our entire being, at a heart level, at a head level, at every level. Many months ago, I quoted James K.A. Smith, who says, you are what you love, but you may not love what you think. And I think many of us feel that way. That's the reality for many of us. So let's unpack the good news about Paul. That's all the bad news, right? All right, so the rest of the time, we're going to talk, it's good news. All right, because we're going to look at what is Paul praying? What is he unpacking here for us? And how can that help us to bridge that gap, to fix our eyes on Jesus? So Paul here uses this phrase, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I just think that's a really cool phrase, like a really cool metaphor. The eyes of your heart. The heart in an ancient understanding was more than the seed of your emotions, okay? When we talk about the heart, right, that's what we think of, right? I've had a broken heart or, you know, like my heart is full. You know, usually we're, we're talking about emotions. Now, if you're living in the ancient world and you want to talk about your emotions, you talk about your bowels, all right? Like, I don't know if they would have said, you know, like my bowels were broken or something, you know, like, it's, <laughs> but if you want to talk about emotions, right, you talk about the bowels. Now, that sounds gross at first, but think about it. When something, you know, when something ha horrible happens in your life, where does it hurt? And it doesn't really hurt here. I, I don't feel like it's like in your guts. You know what I mean? Like you feel it in your guts. Like it's just like, you know, the turning, the twisting, the aching that comes from your, like deep in your guts. They understood that. Like to them, that made sense to say like, my guts, you know, like it hurts. So if they wanted to talk about it, like Paul would have said, having the guts of your heart, or having the eyes of your guts enlightened, right? Okay, but he didn't say that. He said the eyes of your heart, because in the ancient world, your heart was the center of who you were as a person. It encompassed your intellect. It encompassed your rational thinking. It encompassed like everything about who you are. Like, yeah, we might say like the core of who you are, the core of your being, the heart brought together emotions, reasoning, will, intellect. In other words, it was the holistic way of talking about how you understand the world to be. It's the way that you understand the world to be. And I think that right there is the problem for many of us. Is that we need our hearts constantly <laughs> enlightened because we are so easily distracted. And so, just like the physical eyes are the gateway to observing physical objects, so the spiritual eyes are the gateway to seeing the world the way it truly is. 
So this is talking about, in a way, our imagination. And when I, again, when I say imagination, I probably better clarify. I'm not talking about, you know, after Christmas when we had the cardboard box in our house and our kids were constantly in the cardboard box and it was a house, it was a spaceship, it was, you know, it was, you know, because that's normally how we talk about imagination, right? We think of it that way, right? You know, kids are great at imagining, but now I'm an adult, so I don't imagine things anymore. You know, like I just live in reality, you know, or whatever. But what I'm talking about when I say imagination is the way we understand the world. The imagination as philosophers would tell you, plays a vital role in grasping the reality of things that we cannot see. For instance, the wind. <laughs> um, but in grasping reality in which we cannot see. In other words, a reality, an idea, or a concept that eludes the clear sight of our physical eyes needs the imagination. Gravity. There's another one, I suppose. I mean, to a degree, you can observe that, but you can't see it. Um, but it helps us to grasp concepts that elude the clear sight of our physical eyes so that we can comprehend the relevance of that thing. Does that make sense? I know I went a little philosophical there, but hopefully that helps you understand what, what I mean when I'm saying the imagination. And so Paul prays in a way that their cardia, their imaginations, would be enlightened at a core level of understanding to see the good news of the gospel for what it is. Good news. Life-changing good news. If we go back up to verse 17. So remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And I, and I like the way the, the New Living uh, says this. The glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Here's what you need to understand in the Greek because it doesn't necessarily come across in the English. Verses 17 and 18 are parallel. In other words, they basically are saying essentially the same thing. To receive spiritual wisdom and insight means to fully see with the heart. And that is what Paul prays for them. So with this understanding, we've unpacked the imagination, we've unpacked what eyes of the heart means, all this kind of thing. With this understanding, I want us to go really quickly to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, because this is a place where we see the word heart come up. All right, so Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It's probably a passage you're familiar with. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? When we read that passage, I think typically, at least for me, and maybe, I, maybe I'm the only one, and that's okay. You're probably a lot smarter than me, and that's fine. But maybe when you've read that, you've just thought the emotions. Oh, my emotions are you know, deceitful. I can't trust my emotions. I shouldn't trust my emotions. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> but what he's saying is much bigger than that. Okay? So if we come back to this concept of the heart being more than just my feelings and actually being the core of my being, of how I understand the world to be, what Jeremiah is saying is that when we turn from God, when we are not living for God, our hearts do not operate properly. They are deceitful above all things. The core of our being 
is desperately sick. Jeremiah here uses the word lev, which is heart, and it speaks to the same thing as Paul. When we do not give ourselves fully to God, our hearts aren't right. The way we understand the world is not right. And when we do not fix our eyes as Christians, when we do not fix our eyes on Jesus, the reality is we're just going to be deceived. And we're going to be led down paths that seem good, that seem nice to us, but they do not lead to life. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about like how we have been taught in our Western world to compartmentalize our faith, right? Leave your faith at the door. Now we could get into a discussion about how that's impossible. Nobody actually does that. Even an atheist brings their faith, there is no God, into conversation and the way they understand the world. But that's another thing. We have been taught to compartmentalize our faith which is the opposite of fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's actually saying, well, don't fix your eyes on Jesus in this topic, just only on this one, right? And keep it private, keep it to yourself, don't, don't make it public. And I think what it boils down to really is similar, is this idea that, that Jesus is there when I need him, right? What our culture tells us, hey, let Jesus be there when you need him. If that's fine, that's fine. And we believe this idea that, that, you know what? Being a Christian means like Jesus is there when I need him to fill a need, to fix a problem, to affirm me, to encourage me, to be nice, and ultimately to make me happy. We could unpack how all of those things are probably true-ish if we kind of maybe twist their meaning even a little bit there. Um, but... I think that's what we've been told. Compartmentalize your faith. If you need, you know, live your life, go about doing things, but then you get into trouble, you can come to God because he's there. I can ignore him the rest of the time, but when I need him, he's there, right? And he's there to make me happy and he's there to affirm me and he's there to tell me how wonderful I am and great I am and all these sorts of things. What Christian Smith, the philosopher, calls, he calls this moral therapeutic deism. It's not Christianity, he says it's what he said. It's he he did his study in America, and he said it's actually what what many Christians. He would actually say the majority of Christians in America believe is something like moral therapeutic deism. But when you really dive into what Christian Smith says, I think honestly it, we could expand that probably to at least to Ireland in my experience. Um, and this idea of of moral therapeutic deism is a neutered version of God. And that's, it's exactly what we talk about. Like, basically, he actually, uh, so one guy, Kevin Van Hooser, calls it the Oprahfication of God. <laughs> that basically, we, we turn Jesus into Oprah, or some, you know, some sort of self-help sort of guru who's there when I need him, just to affirm me, to tell me I'm wonderful, and all of that, but has no real authority in my life. And sociologist, Irish sociologist Tom Inglis talks about this being, um, he calls a la carte Christianity in, in Ireland, where essentially that's exactly what it is. I find the things that affirm me, that make me happy, but none of it really has an, an, an authority in my life. And I think many of us struggle because that's what we're fed all the time. And that's what, so it's so easy to fall into that without even realizing it. 
that we lose that sight of fixing our eyes on Jesus, of making him the authority, of letting him change and develop and, sh and shape our imaginations the way we understand the world. So how do we fix our eyes and our whole hearts? How do we fix our whole hearts on Jesus? This is where I think the next few verses that Paul unpacks for us are really helpful. Paul prays that we would come to imagine and to understand or to know with our whole being that there is more to life than what we are being sold by our culture, our politicians, our philosophers and influencers. And that there is a future promise that is one of perfect peace. He wants us to remember that we are eternally loved by the God of the universe and incredibly special to him. And that we are people with power, power to live for Christ and his kingdom in this world. It's the same power, Paul says, that, that raised Jesus from the dead. And so we're going to take the next few minutes unpacking this. So here's what Paul says. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give us the wisdom of uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe. So let's start with this first, first thing, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The first thing we need to understand is that when the Bible talks about hope, it's not that like, you know, I, I hope that my favorite sports team wins today, or I hope that I get a good grade on the test, or I hope that the people at work are not that annoying today, or whatever, you know, like it's not this sort of like wishful thinking. Instead, it is an assurance of that which we cannot See, that's what the Bible, what Paul is talking about here when he talks about hope. And I think when Paul talks about hope, he's talking about two things. See, there's so much in our world that, that says, you know, okay, hope in this or hope in that. But here's what Paul wants us to hope in. He wants us to hope in the future and he wants us to hope in, that, in the now. What some um, theologians would call the already but not yet. In other words, there is a world that is already here. We can hope. We, like Jesus is changing us here and now and empowering us to live for him in the world. There is hope that the gospel can change us, that the gospel can give us peace, even a, a level of peace that is un, like, uncharacteristic in this world, right? That there is a peace that is possible, that when Jesus says, my, burden, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, when Jesus says that he came to bring life and life abundantly or life to the full, that that is possible in some sense right here, right now. We don't have to chase after holidays in Italy or holidays in Tenerife, wherever you prefer. We don't have to chase after that promotion. We don't have to cheat people to get to the top. We don't have, like... We have a peace available to us as followers of Jesus that is not available to those who do not follow Jesus. And that's good news. That there is a peace even in the here and the now, in the present. But there is also a hope for the future because we know even no matter what level of peace we can experience even right now, 
even if we're experiencing that peace, we can look into the world and see that there is anything but peace in our world. As we watch Ukraine be leveled to the ground. As we read uh, about Ethiopia and civil war, people dying. You know, with the World Cup in Qatar, it brought all kinds of human rights things to the fore. We see that there is so much in our world that is wrong, that is lacking peace. Here's the promise for the future. It won't always be that way. It will not always be that way. There is a peace that is coming. A true peace where everything is right where we stand completely right in relationship with God, where people sit completely right in relationship with themselves, where people sit completely correct and right and full in their relationship with other people. There are no more wars, where swords are beaten into plowshares. That is the future. And where work is no longer a burden but a joy where all is right with creation. This is the hope that we have as Christians in Christ, that all will be set right. And it won't be that we somehow evacuate ourselves up to heaven, but rather the picture is that heaven comes down. Jesus and his kingdom descend here on earth, and the earth is remade and made new. God is not making all new things. God is making all things new. That's... uh, that uh, Andrew Peterson, I almost said Jordan Peterson, do not know, do not confuse the two. They are not the same. Andrew Peterson uh, says that, and it's one of my favorite quotes, right? That God is not making all new things. He's making all things new. And that's the reality of heaven come down to earth. That guys, we will live in perfect harmony in all directions, in every sphere of life. This is the hope that we have, that we will spend eternity with Jesus, that the gift that we have is the hope of Jesus. That, guys, there couldn't be anything better than spending eternity with our Creator in perfect peace, not sitting up in a cloud playing a harp, but enjoying the fruits And maybe that sounds wonderful to you. Um, I I don't know. Um, A harp is fine. But I like the vision that John gives us in Revelation a lot better. Marriage supper of the Lamb. That sounds pretty good. Where we stand in a crowd singing to Jesus and glory to him. Where we bring our treasures that we have, the works that we have done, we bring them before him. That there is work, there's purpose even still. This is the hope to which we are called. Our near future is secure and our eternal future is guaranteed. But Paul goes on. He's not done. He says that we need to have our eyes open to see the wonderful hope that there is in Jesus. But more even on top of that, he goes on to say, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul has said that we are united with Christ and that we have received an inheritance. But he says something different here. And I think it's really important. He says about the, the glorious, like, sorry, let me just read it again. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is not our inheritance that he's talking about. 
This is his inheritance, God's inheritance. God has an inheritance? <laughs> what is that? Yeah, God has an inheritance. And you know what it is, guys? You. Isn't that amazing? Like, we typically think of inheritance as a good thing. And I could look at myself and be like, I don't know that I'm that great of a prize. At least that's how I feel sometimes. I don't know. I'm okay, I guess, but not that great. But when God looks at you and he looks at me, he says that we are his glorious inheritance. Let that sink into you. Maybe you struggle with self-worth. Maybe you struggle with feeling like you're enough. When God looks at you, when he looks at his church, and I think this is more specifically what he's talking about here, especially, is his church, but you are a part of that. That we are his glorious inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Do you hear that? Paul and Peter are on the same page here. And where did they get this page? They got it from the Old Testament. <laughs> In Deuteronomy chapter 7, and I'm just going to read verses 7 to 8. But this whole kind of section is talking about God calling his people, Israel. He says, The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. Hear that for a moment. It doesn't say, well, God chose you because you were just so great. It doesn't say that. It says God chose the people of Israel just because he loved them. He loved them because he loved them. Not because they were so amazing or so wonderful or they did all the right things. Because if you read the Old Testament, you know they did not do all the right things. They were terrible at doing the right things constantly and consistently. If they were consistent with one thing, it was not doing the right thing. <laughs> right? And so you and I, I think, we're a part of that heritage. <laughs> As, as Paul says here, as Peter says, we are that inheritance now too. And God loves you because he loves you, not because you're really good at being good. In fact, you probably can identify with the Israelites more than you would care to admit. At least I know I can, right? That I am constantly and consistently an idiot. I hope I'm less of an idiot now than I was Two years ago, or five years ago, or ten years ago. But I'm still prone, as the song, you know, song says, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That is still, unfortunately, the story of my life. And yet I know that I am his inheritance. God loves me because he loves me. And he loves you because he loves you. Do you see how this could change things? the eyes of our hearts begin to be opened to the fact that there is a wonderful hope that God is bringing us into and that this God loves you because he loves you. You are his inheritance. God shares, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7 to 8, God shares his riches and his glory with us. But to him, we constitute his riches and his glory. Finally, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us 
who believe. I think sometimes in the midst of our powerlessness in this world, and maybe you feel that way, like what am I going to do? What am I supposed to do? feeling of powerlessness in the world, we can trust that God's incredible might is available and is operating on our behalf. In the short run, we may not have much of a voice. In the short run, we may feel beaten down. But God's power is available to us. Now, that's not the type of worldly power that we think about, right? It's not that strong arm power like, you know, of authoritarian regimes that all of a sudden, you know, I become like the Hulk and I can just, you know, I don't know, rip phone books in half or whatever. You know, like that's not the power it's talking about here. It's the power of Jesus, guys. The power of Jesus, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, Paul says, is available to you and me. And what is that power for? What is that power for? To be like Jesus. See, we can feel beaten down sometimes and feel like, you know what? I just can't do it. And we need to remember, we need to have the eyes of our hearts opened to remember that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives inside of you and me and empowers us to live in this broken world, this world that is constantly showing its signs of, of being, a, what am I wanting to say? It's signs of brokenness. To shine as a light in this world. Right? Peter, going back to 1 Peter, to show others the goodness of God. For he called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We now live in that wonderful light and we project that light into the world. We have the ability to live like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. Right? And what did Jesus do? He went about sharing the good news of the kingdom of God with people. He went about healing people, healing the sick, healing the blind. Like, right? Now, I'm not saying we're going to go, go around being like, you can see and you can see, you know, or something like, like, but what I'm saying is this, Jesus went to the marginalized people, the people who were hurting and broken, and he was there. That's who he served. He served those people. He loved them. And guess what? We can too. We can show the world what God is like. Because the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. God makes his power available to us. And so, as we kind of come to the end here, what we see in these last few verses is we see that Paul gets really excited. I love it. So he's been praying, right? He says, he starts a prayer. He says, here's what I pray for you. And then it's like, all of a sudden, he just is like, okay, I got to talk about this power just a little bit more because it's really cool. <laughs> Right? So he starts this prayer, writing out this prayer. And then it's like he gets distracted. And then he goes, he goes, I just want to talk about the gospel. I want us to come back to the good news of Jesus. And I just need to unpack this a little more for you guys before we really dive into the letter, right? And so Paul, he retells the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he invites the people to remember the good news that they believe. And I think this is important. When we're talking about this power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead... This is the pivotal series of events that makes our hope possible, that makes the love of God for us to experience, to be that inheritance, makes that possible. 
and makes our reception of the power of God possible. He says that according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I think he comes back to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus because we live in a broken world where it is so easy to say, do you know what? I don't think God is really in charge. I mean, look around at things. Because the people that he's writing to in Ephesus, do you know what Ephesus was like? It was like completely anti-Christian. In fact, it was one of the centers of witchcraft in the Roman Empire. All right? This is not some nice place where like everything is conducive to the gospel or something like that. No, it is people who are literally experiencing demonic oppression on a regular basis. It is people who... Also, by the way, Ephesus was one of the centers of the worship of empire. One of the, like, it is like one of the places in the Roman Empire at this time where if you want to worship the emperor, this is where you go. You want to worship the empire, this is where you go. And so in a world that is controlled by an empire that brings its peace through bloodshed, through violence, in a world marked by oppression, by the powers of, the, of, of darkness that we don't necessarily always see at work, but are at work, Paul says, right? In this world of spiritual darkness, physical darkness, physical and spiritual oppression, Paul writes, Jesus is alive and he is on his throne and he is coming back. Nobody else compares to him. And let that be an encouragement to you guys. If you feel that way, you feel that brokenness, you look around in the world and you feel like this is a world without hope. Jesus is on his throne and he has put all things under his feet. And as I said before, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus will return and set all things right. True justice will be done. And so to close... I love that Paul here, he doesn't pray. What Paul doesn't pray is, Lord, I pray that the Ephesians would just try a little bit harder. Lord, I pray the Ephesians would be better at being good. Lord, I pray that they would just, for once in their life, listen to my advice and do what I say. Right? Because that's a lot of Paul's letters, right? He, he writes, he's like, greetings to you who are in Christ Jesus. Why are you so stupid? You know, it's like, here's what you need to be doing, right? You know, that's a lot of Paul's letters. But like, that's not what he prays here. That's not what he prays here. Paul doesn't pray that the people would be better at obeying or trying harder. He prays that they will gain a knowledge centered on the truths of God's redemptive work on their behalf. The things that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. That's what he wants them to remember. And so guys, if you get nothing else from this sermon, you are not saved by trying harder. God does not love you more because you try harder. What you need to remember, what you need the eyes of your hearts open to is the hope that we have as Christians because Jesus has given his life for us. He has been raised from the dead 
and sits on his throne. And because of that, we as his glorious inheritance, people who are loved because we are loved, can live in this world with the same power that Jesus had. So Paul prays that we'll gain a knowledge centered on the truths of God's redemptive accomplishments, that we will become like Jesus and experience his goodness and life. True life comes from knowing Jesus and experiencing a deeper knowledge of the gospel, of God's lavish gifts of hope, God's lavish gifts of redemption, and God's lavish gifts of powerful salvation. Because I hope that that was helpful. Like I said, this is a passage to me that as I've sat with it more and more is incredibly, like, it's just one of those, like, I just, I love this passage. And I really hope, as I said, that this passage will be helpful to you. Um, I'm just going to pray for us. And, and, and again, I just want to encourage you to read, to read this again. Maybe even just sit with it. Let God speak to you through it. More than just you know, the last few minutes where I've been unpacking this. All right, but let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. The hope that is more than just, I don't know, the hope that is more than just fleeting possessions or experiences, but the hope of the fullness of, G of life that Jesus brings. God, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be opened to know these things. God, not just to know them at a head level, but to know them at the core of our being, of who we are. God, and may it shape and change who we are that we may be more like Jesus as we know Jesus. We know you more and more. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.